and welcome back to the Urban Podcast. I'm Olivia Round. Today I'm joined by... Andrew Fall from Buxton Stonington in uh, Chapel Street. Fred Newcara, Director of Aston Commercial. Well, welcome to you both and thanks so much for joining me on the show today. So Fred and Andrew, I'd like to hear your respective takes on what to look out for in an up-and-coming suburb here in Australia, both from a residential and a commercial perspective. So, Fred, what would you recommend your commercial clients look out for? Look, um, commercial property spans far and wide, so it's it's not only just about location. I mean, there's obviously property types that exist out there, such as retail, office and industrial sectors and other specialist sectors, for example, uh, childcare and, and medical centres. I think that um, you know making a recommendation as to what investment is best for a particular client or a particular investor, you know it, it can vary depending on their age group. So, for example, someone that's a bit more elderly and well into their seventies is probably looking for a higher income and return in commercial investments. So, their strategy may be around trying to buy properties with a higher return compared to perhaps someone in their mid thirties or early forties is perhaps a bit more entrepreneurial, has time on their side and happy to buy with a lower return and looking to redevelop and get uh, an upside in, in redevelopment. So when you're looking at those property type categories, um, it can very much be personalised to the particular investor. So for example, retail investments are generally selling from sort of you know three and a half to five percent depending where they are and how long the lease is across Melbourne. Um, if you look at office investments, it can be from 5% to about 6%, uh, depending on location and quality of the building and the tenant. And then you have the industrial sector, which seems to be the flavour of the month at the moment with um, uh, logistics and manufacturing actually still growing in, in the outer suburbs. And they do provide a higher return, which could be from sort of 6 to 8%. So the investment return is quite you know, good in commercial uh, property. And again, it really comes down to... Um, you know, what the profile of the investor is. You know, we, we never like to sort of suggest that this is the best investment. It's really trying to understand the client first and what their requirements are given where they are in terms of an investment cycle. That's really interesting. So now let's take a look at the residential perspective. Andrew, I think this is probably a question everybody wants to know the answer to. What is the trick to buying in a suburb before property prices skyrocket? Well, I think there's a there's a certain amount of risk that goes with that, and it really just depends on people's appetite for risk. So you've obviously got into get into a, a suburb where there's something that's going to trigger that growth, and that's generally could be you know a, a transport hub, um, or there'd be a re- rezone of um, rural land that will become residential. Then all of a sudden. You know, a little town can pop up overnight. So, you know, then that town needs services to supply those new residents. So there's an element of risk involved in that, but I suppose that's reflected in the, the price that people pay. So it, it it's a, depends on, like what Fred was mentioning, the life cycle of the individual as to what point in life they're at. And but the biggest driver on both fronts is, is, is the amount of money they've got to spend. So I think it starts with... You know yeah, the dollars. what the dollars yeah. are, and yeah. that basically then becomes a match of what quality of life they want, and that will determine whether they buy an apartment or a house. Mm. And some people are just you know hell bent on having a house, so they'll end up further out in the suburbs because that's what their budget allows them to do. Other people are saying, well, I don't want to travel an hour to work, 
they'll end up in an apartment in a, in a city suburb. Yeah. It's so true, though, because the, the, the budget is very relevant for, for both the commercial you know, buyer, which can be very clinical about purchasing, and a residential buyer that also has a budget perhaps a bit more emotional about their, their experience. So, but both are, are very much driven by a quantum of dollars. And I think that the point that uh, Andrew and I have always uh, sort of made to people who are looking to buy in either sector is that you are really not there to buy on a speculative basis. You're there for the long journey. So you've, you've, you've earned the right to build up a deposit, buy that residential apartment or home or buy that commercial property, and you're not there to really flick it in the next 12 months. You're there to have a seven-year view. So... It's really about time in the market rather than trying to, you know, time when is the right time to buy or is this the hip suburb? Yes, they're drivers, um, but really it's ultimately about having the balance between the right budget and then the location and everything else will look after itself because those drivers that Andrew was talking about, gentrification in some of those areas or, for example, you know, if there's a retail investor and they suddenly see an apartment block with the supermarket at the bottom of it, well, that creates a, a commercial drive towards it. So their similar factors budget will drive it to for the, for the same outcome, but it's about the long haul rather than trying to pick, is this a good buy today? It's about saying, this is what I can afford today and the fundamentals are good for the future. Definitely. So aside from the fluctuations in the property market, what causes property prices to increase? Well, I think that, you know, access to credit is probably, this is probably been the best example of, of the reverse of that, that the minute um, under the Royal Commission um, and APRO imposing their, their latest regulations on, on banks as to the lending criteria, all of a sudden access to credit is, is a massive thing, and that's both across commercial and residential. Um, so when the money's flowing freely, um, people are prepared to take greater risk and that, that will probably happen again um, in the immediate future because it's driven by term deposit rates and um, looking at the government bonds where there are historic lows, so keeping your money in the bank or in bonds is not going to increase your wealth dramatically, so what that will do is create people um, taking greater risk and Australians have a love affair with property, so I mean, obviously the equities market and share markets an area that they'll definitely uh, and are playing in, which is a bit like a roller coaster, though. Um, but certainly, property is is an area that, if the money starts flowing a lot freer, then that will create prices to go up because people will take risk um, in the residential market. You know, investors are starting to come back into the market; they haven't been prevalent for at least eighteen months. So investors are now sort of starting to say, well, we've got money, we don't know where to put it, property's always a safe bet, we're buying at, at hopefully the bottom of the market, so the view is that prices at some point will go up in the future. Um, so as soon as the banks start loosening the purse strings, um, then that will be a, a huge driver to the market picking up again. Just on the idea of the risk factor, do you have any commercial or residential clients who have um, made a risky choice that has paid off really well? Oh, look, I think um, <clears throat> sometimes look, the reality is there, there is risk. It's just a matter of what level of risk does each client want to live with. I mean, sometimes we, we, you know, we clutch our, our 
sort of, you know, and our face in our hands and go, oh, God, why did they do that? And time has proven that we were the deals, not them. <laughs> so I think sometimes you've, you've got to give a degree of respect to clients because they're out there, you know, doing some good homework and doing their own investigations. And we're also being at the forefront, being exposed to a lot of different transactional information that can really be valuable IP to a client making a decision. And I think that melded together does, you know, allow a client to make an informed view. Now, we may disagree with that view, but they may have you know, information in their own minds that leads them to not see it as risky, whereas we would. And we've had situations where you may be not aligned totally to what a client um, wants to do, but generally speaking, um, they do rely heavily on a lot of the information we're providing because of you know, the volume of data that's going through our office and, and the intel we're getting. But, so, yeah. I mean, there's, there's instances, for, yeah. for example, developers who are buying mm. residential land that... Um, you know, the market was booming and they would buy in, in a suburb that was pro-development, but then all of a sudden there was a rezone change mm-hmm. and instead of being able to build, say, a block of 15 to 20 apartments, all of a sudden the, the zoning was that you mm-hmm. could build two dwellings maximum. So if they got their timing wrong, which is no, not through their own fault, it's just, you know, the risk that we talk about is that they bought and paid for a site that was based on one use, which has then changed and significantly reduces the value to mm. probably 50% of what it was originally purchased for. So that's timing. Now, if they got their timing right, then they look like a genius, but if they get their timing wrong, then you know obviously they suffer the consequences. So that's been an ongoing theme, and, and that's where you have to have your finger on the pulse, understanding um, the, the planning code and what's going on and what the risks are associated with it. But... Um, some of that is is what they factor in. They have to look at the downside, um, but lots of um, developers don't necessarily look at the downside, um, and that's where they can come unstuck. But you know, the the residential consumer is exactly the same. Um, they may buy into a building, that, you know, in recent times that may have had cladding issues. All of a sudden, you know, it's been obviously a, um, high on the agenda in the in the papers. Um, you know, all of a sudden, if they didn't do their research, look into the body corporate and do their proper due diligence, then they could find themselves associated with a building that has a bad name and fundamentally the prices will drop 15 or 20% mm. as a result of having that issue um, because your buyer pool all of a sudden that wants to buy into that building is reduced and it is associated with a bad name. So the, I guess due diligence in purchasing, whether you're a a residential investor or a commercial investor is is paramount mm. but even regardless of how diligent you are there are things like planning codes that can you're change outside your control. you're outside your control and all of a sudden you find yourself um, in a risky investment that hasn't paid off what would be the main risks that you suggest clients look for Yeah, look, I think that the first thing is you really can't just assign it to one particular attribute of the property I think it's about identifying, you know, you know, you look at location and the surrounds. It's not just about where it is, but what is around it. What are some of the underlying fundamentals around there that support that, that precinct, firstly? Um, you do certainly look at things like public transport accessibility and, and, and car accessibility. You look at the building and its economic life. You know, is it, is it a building that needs a lot of capital works? You know, things like air conditioning right through to, you know, the, the carpets and walls and the configuration of the space. 
they all become really important in terms of not only are you buying for today, but are you buying for tomorrow as well? What's the next business that can go in there? So that becomes another factor. And, and then the final part of it really is about the tenant who's in there, assuming it's a leased property, and, and what's their viability and how do we go through a process to verify their, their bona fides. And probably the biggest one on yeah. that, Fred, is, is the face value rent. Is the yeah. rent that that tenant is paying today, is that the true market rent? And yeah. is it? Because if it's overinflated rent, then naturally if that tenant moves out, your rent's going to drop yeah. and therefore the value, value drops. investment drops. So. Yeah. You know, the first, one of the first ports of call for us is to assess everything that Fred's talking about, but probably the obvious one is, rent. is the face rent to make sure that a client understands that it's it may be underlet, which mm. is great because then there's a, a, an upside to it, mm. or it may be just market rent or it may be um, mm. over-rented, and that means that it will affect the value of the investment. Now, some clients are still prepared to take that risk because mm. it might be a five-year lease and they're happy to say, well, I think it's a good tenant, they're going to last for five years and I am factoring in the rent's going to drop, but they're happy to capture that income for five years. But we just make it mm. you know, abundantly clear to that client as to what the circumstances are around that asset. Mm. And once again, they can then assess that risk in their own mind whether to proceed or not proceed, but they're not going mm. into it blindfolded. So if you look at risk as, as such, I mean, if you, from a commercial viewpoint, and you look at 100% risks, matters such as you know, the rent being aligned to market, for example, is, is probably 50% of that attribute. Mm. So it's really important you get that right. Um, and then I think the other 50% are divided equally between those other sort of attributes I mentioned. So from a commercial perspective, which suburbs do you see as having a great potential for growth currently in Melbourne? I can't tell you that, Olivia. <laughs> that's IP. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, I, I, um, look, I, I think that it, it, it's interesting because, how can I say, precincts go through transitions. So, for example, if you had have asked me about Chapel Street five years ago, you would say, you've got to go buy on Chapel Street. It's humming. Now there's 40 vacancies currently in Chapel Street and everyone thinks, oh, my God, what's going on? <laughs> So it's going through a transition. We all accept that. But still, it's one of Australia's premier shopping strips. Can you honestly go and recommend a client to go and buy on Chapel Street? In some cases, it's probably not a bad strategy because you're buying at the bottom of the bell curve, as we say. So maybe you're buying as cheap as it possibly can be in Chapel Street for the benefit of upside in the future. That's a different play and a riskier play than to say go and buy in an area like Box Hill, which has a very unique Asian community that's quite strong and vibrant, and you're going to lease properties really, really quickly when they become vacant. You know, if they become vacant, I mean, it's negligible. So both have their merits and both areas have their strengths, and again, it comes back to what's the client risk that you, that, that, that exists out there. So to answer your question about you know, the hot spots and all of that, again, we don't really focus on what we call necessarily hot spots. We see areas, for example, parts of Collingwood and Abbotsford that are beginning to show, you know, a real gentrification and a shift and, and high-rise developments beginning to kick into those areas. So there is an underlying principle there that should be considered. So certainly you do have a suite of five or six areas that you begin to focus on because they are a little bit more pro-development. And there is, again, going back to those fundamentals of some really... Classic yeah. example where it went through. Yeah, up the that top transformation end. there. You know, there was massive vacancies there, um, and it, because car parking is an issue in, in Turak Road, but all of a sudden, 
as Fred touched on earlier, mm. is these service providers that are required. So as soon as all these high-rises pop up, all of a sudden, you know, those service businesses, I mean, obviously restaurants, cafes, um, Nail Beauties, Massage, all of those, um, vacant shops became occupied. So I guess that's a classic example of the, the turnover of a, a strip mm. that was a sick puppy that's now, you know, thriving. Mm. Yeah, so so I think that to answer your question around those hotspots, I think it, it's about really identifying where we genuinely believe, based on all these various attributes, that it's going to kick on. And I think you, you, we do like to make a call on those, and it can change very quickly. Mm. You know, six months is a long time. You know, believe it or not, that you know, even three months it can change. The mood of an area can change. Bridge roads, yeah, example. yeah, it's right. Bridge road, you, you know, that's a very good example. But it's beginning to show, again, it's coming back. Um, but how long has it taken? Probably up six or seven years, but it's coming back. Um, so, look, I think some of the, um, you know, when it, when it comes to choosing the hotspots, it, it's really that point in time. And, again, it's all driven by the client budget. But mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of um, certain precincts around Melbourne that sort of pop up into our mind that we begin to say, look, there is something happening, let's explore it a bit further and let's get a sense... Is the hype real? Because you can get caught out, like you see in Fisherman's Bend, mm. as an example, where developers have put their, you know, put a footprint, you know, bought sites there, knowing that it, there's this unlimited height limit, it's all going to go, and then new government gets in and changes the rules. Well, they've worn that risk. That's their issue to deal with. But the reality is it can change like that. But mm. Fisherman's Bend was on our radar with a couple of client developers to just consider because there was something happening there. And it comes back to that... FOMO thing, but not forgetting about the fundamentals. So, an appetite for risk. Yeah, an appetite for risk. So they're the three things that all say. The principles don't really change, Olivia. Mm. Hopefully that answers your question. Yes, yeah. And so I think to wrap up, where would you buy in Melbourne? <laughs> Be it commercial or residential? Well, I think, look, question. you know, it's a very personal choice. I think residential, um, you know, obviously there's owner-occupiers and investors. So, But I think they go hand in hand and, and generally... We find that, um, you know, certainly in my 28 years, people tend to invest where they would like to live um, because they have a very good comfort level around that. So you'll find that a lot of people, unless they have a high appetite for risk, will invest within a municipality that they're comfortable with because they know all the infrastructure and they have a real degree of comfort there. And because it's such a large investment for them... um, Obviously, as an owner-occupier, it's all about lifestyle and then it, you know, flows on to the fact that, you know, are they married, are they going to have kids, and if they are, what schools do they want their kids to go to, etc. So there's a whole lot of varying factors there. So it's not... It's a very personal question, so my answer wouldn't suit everybody. Um, so I, I think, you know, I would invest in areas that I know particularly well because I know the fabric of what's going on and I know the drivers of that area, so that to me is gives me huge comfort um, to, to know that if I'm investing my money, I have a, a unique understanding of that area and the fabric of what's happening in that area that should sustain the investment and go up in value. Um, but my appetite for risk is not massive um, I've, because we're exposed to seeing you know, the highs and lows of people investing, so we get the benefit of experiencing other people's wins and mistakes. Um, so I think I have a measured view on, on the risk associated with that. So it's 
investing in areas that I feel comfortable with and pretty much, you know, I always say to, to investor clients, always invest in something that if something, heaven forbid, happens within your life and you're forced to live in that property that, that was an investment, is, is it an area and is it a property that you'd be prepared to live in? And if the answer's no, then don't buy it. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> Well, you want an answer from me now? That commercial, <laughs> but yeah, where would you buy? <laughs> I, look, I, I think it, it comes back to it's not really about where would you buy; it's more about what can you afford to buy first. I think that's the starting point in commercial. Once you've got that, I think it comes back down to really understanding the various precincts. And, and look, one of the things we do look out for, you know, as I said, there's a number of variety of what we call investment attributes that you look for, but certainly. Um, if there's government infrastructure spending in a particular area that could kickstart a particular precinct, we look for that. Or if there's a private development that's happening in a particular area, that could be the catalyst to say this is going to be good in four or five years because it's not only just about buying today. So we really begin to focus on some of the what we call the big rocks in certain precincts and areas. So, for example, if you look at the North East Link, which is actually a road and arterial project, Mm. Are there industrial and office precincts along that arterial that can benefit from it? Mm. And because they will be the beneficiaries of ease of transport as a result. So what that means, it comes back to working closer to home mm -hmm. and are there commercial and industrial precincts along that northeast link that will be the beneficiary? And what investments can we buy today? So I'll give you an example. Um, are, now there's a small little sort of pocket in Blackburn that's sort of sitting there as an industrial precinct that you could just see that it's probably going to benefit because mm. of the ease of transport and location as a result yeah. of the North East Link. Maybe parts of Bulleen would kick, maybe parts of Greensboro. So you need to explore all these areas, but there's some, again, that's the big rock. What may benefit? Not all of them will, but some will. So the challenge for us is really to identify those big rocks and then begin to see what are, the, what are the little nodes around there that, could, that can benefit from it? So I tend to focus more on, one, what is the, the client budget and requirement, and then really begin to start to look at all of that. So that's perhaps more forward-thinking investment. And the other thing is in this sort of environment we're in today, um, not everyone necessarily wants to sell their commercial property because it's providing a stable return at the moment. And I think that um, what it then leads to is where there is perhaps less supply. And when there's less supply and the demand's still just consistently there, um, you tend to find that prices are holding fairly well. So the perception of, in this market, I'm going to get a really good cheap buy, I think that that's, that's something that's... If you start thinking like that, you're never going to buy because we can, we ne we can never pick necessarily the bottom or the top. We generally get a feeling for it. I think a couple of years ago we spoke about the perfect storm, you know, and everyone thought, well, crazy. That we said, you know, you've got, you know, rising prices, really, really low yield, credit was easy, and, you know, there was this indication that in two years' time there could be a shift in the market, and everyone thinks, well, you're on another planet. Well, all of a sudden that market shifted, hasn't it? So it now the fundamentals still haven't changed what we're thinking, but it's just now harder to find because there is less supply and less owners looking to sell. So getting back to sort of hopefully answering your question, Olivia, is that, look, it's really driven by affordability, those investment attributes about location, what's happening around there, the, 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 the economic life left in that building, your tenant, 
and then all these other fundamentals about public transport and government and infrastructure. infrastructure really, really mm-hmm. important to find out and uh, see that as the key fundamentals. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, and it's great to chat with you. Okay. Thank, thank you, you, Olivia. Thank, thank you. Thanks. <laughs>